Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. My name is Chris Troiano, joined always by my good friend Stephen Canastrisi. Hello. And this is episode number five, where we'll be talking with Dr. Michael O'Connor from Palm Beach Atlantic University in West Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, Dr. Michael O'Connor is the director of the Coates Brass Band and Newberry's Victorian Cornet Band, and also one of the founding members of the Washington Cornet and Sackbot Ensemble in Washington, D.C., so we're really excited to share this interview with you. Uh, Stephen, it, it was a lot of really good information, uh, covered a lot of bases in a short amount of time, but I think they're really going to enjoy this one. Definitely, yeah. This one was a really fun one to record, and um, there's a lot of information about here in here about Thomas Coates, who is kind of more or less a, a lost figure in, in this in this time period. So I think if you don't know anything about him yet, uh, you're really going to enjoy this one. Uh, and we'll have some, some good listening for you at the end. For sure. So enjoy episode number five. All right. We are pleased to have Dr. Michael O'Connor with us today, Associate Professor of Music History at Palm Beach Atlantic University in West Palm Beach, Florida. Thank you very much for being with us today, Dr. O'Connor. Hey, it's my pleasure. It's uh, It's been a fine uh, podcast so far. Uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for contributing to our content. So I guess we can start all the way back at the beginning, if you don't mind. Do you mind kind of giving us a little bit of your musical background, maybe how you started getting into music, where, where you went to school, those, those types of things? Oh, sure. I, I started, like most brass players, um, beginning band um, back in uh, Paducah, Kentucky, uh, where I started, although I'm, I'm from New York, uh, central New York, but uh, <laughs> um, started beginning band on the cornet, um, like a lot of guys. And then by, I think it was uh, eighth grade, I, mean, I was playing in the first cornet section, but I noticed that there was an instrument sitting in the corner that no one was playing. Uh, it was, a, you know, it was a, a baritone horn. And so I, I talked to my band directors, you know, just to kind of goof around on it a little bit. And, you know, he started, you know, plying me with the usual, hey, much easier to make Allstate on that instrument than, you know, <laughs> than a million cornet players. I said, oh, sure. Yeah, I'll give it a go. And um, Were you playing that in treble clef then? Yes, I was playing in treble clef at first, mm -hmm. which is great because I was able to start playing in British brass bands with really no learning curve. Yeah, yeah it makes you your life easier <laughs> earlier on. <laughs> so, um so I started playing that, and uh, and sure enough, I don't know if it was easier, but you know, I, I worked pretty hard to get into the, you know the district bands and the all state bands and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, we moved around quite a bit. We, like I said, I started in Kentucky, um, did high school in Paris, Tennessee, and then uh, the second half of high school in Springfield, Missouri. So um, you know, I finished up there. Uh, while I was in Tennessee, at one point, uh, I guess auditioning for one of the bands, um, one of the judges was Winston Morris. And so he was rather um, um, persistent about calling me and trying to get me to go to Tennessee Tech. Mm. And so after one year at uh, what's now called Missouri State, um, I decided, yeah, I want a little bit more of a challenge. And so I um, decided to go to Tennessee Tech. That was about, what, 1981, I guess. And then, um, you know, uh, worked my way up, became a principal euphonium in the Tubon ensemble there. And, you know, did our, you know, Carnegie Hall tour and all that sort of thing. And then um, after tech, um, I decided to, uh, I got a music ed degree there, decided to keep, um, you know, trying to get, you know, on as a professional euphonium player. So I went to Arizona State, um, 
midst of that, I did a uh, audition at West Point for the West Point band and made the finals. But, uh, you know, um, nobody actually won that audition that year. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, the, uh, the person, the person who was supposed to be getting out decided not to. And, yeah. um, so it was a great hate experience, it. but, uh, hate um, it when that happens. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so uh, did Arizona State for a year, and then I got a call from a guy named Mark Ellis, who was the band leader at the Clyde Beatty and Cole Brothers Circus. Mm. And so, you know, I, I figured, okay, you know, I want to be a professional euphonium player, so here's a job. Yeah, and yeah. sure enough, I went out there, and uh, it was a very interesting life, I got to say, uh, and, for about five where, years. Where was that circus based out of? Based out of Deland, Florida, okay. uh, the same place where Stetson University is. Gotcha. And... Um, we would start there and then travel up the uh, East Coast for uh, from about the end of March, and then uh, we get up into New York and uh, New England about the summer, and then turn around and head back uh, by way of New Orleans and end up back in Florida about November, right around Thanksgiving. Mm. And uh, so did that for a number of years. Um, the guys in the band were fantastic. I mean, this was really, really a, a top-notch professional union band, and um, you know, it was that was my you know sort of my professional uh, performing career right there. Yeah. But somewhere along the line, I decide, hey, you know, this is, uh, you know, I can play the same stuff kind of every year for the next couple of years, or I can, I can use, you know, my degree and go back and teach school. So I decided mm -hmm. to do that mm -hmm. and started teaching uh, high school in uh, East Tennessee in a little place called Sweetwater, Tennessee. <laughs> and um, then uh, after about a year of that, because, you know, the, the financial situation in the school district there, I decided to go, Back to grad school and um, so I finished up my uh, master of performance in euphonium at Florida State and then while I was there <laughs> um, since I, I finished up in the middle of the year not a great time to look for jobs I decided to uh, finish a uh, degree in musicology as well hmm. and then you know that sort of led one thing to another and decided to finish the PhD in historical musicology at Florida State hmm. Great. And that was the was the bachelor's degree in performance. My bachelor's degree was in music education. Okay, yeah. and and then just to backpedal a little bit for those listening that might not know, uh, Dr. O'Connor was mentioning Winston Morris earlier. Winston Morris is uh, a huge name in the tuba euphonium world. He's credited with basically creating the tuba euphonium ensemble and having a monster studio down at Tennessee Tech. So just didn't want to glazed by that that major uh, <laughs> accomplishment of being a part of his studio and involved in that ensemble. I think we've actually mentioned Tennessee Tech in a in a previous episode in, in passing. I think but, so. Yeah, and he's still teaching there um, today, I believe. Yeah. Unless he yes. retired and I missed it, but I think he's still I was uh, I was up at uh, his 50th anniversary uh, celebration just uh, 2016, I think that was. Mm. And I brought uh, one of my bands up there to perform for that. It was uh, and you know, he's still going. He's he's looking at another 50. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and that's 50 years all at Tennessee Tech, right? Or is that yes, collegiate? all at Tennessee Tech? Yeah. yeah, wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I remember at um, the ITech International Tuba Euphonium Conference when it was in Tennessee at the University of Tennessee. I think that was 2016, maybe. I met him very briefly in passing backstage uh, during the small ensemble competition. He had a he had a group competing there. Um, he's a super nice guy. Oh, uh, definitely. Um, un unless you weren't getting things done. Yep. <laughs> and, then, and then he was never, ever shy about letting you know. <laughs> yeah, which can be good. For yeah, anyone. oh, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. I mean, if you look at all of the uh, the tuba players who eventually went on to get, uh, 
either uh, orchestral or mostly the, the big military band jobs. And they all came from tech. And some of us euphonium players uh, managed it as well. Um, uh, William Hunley, for example, at the Annapolis Band, or um, I'm trying to think of another euphonium player. Um, um, a couple of them just recently, which I haven't kept as well track of. But I mean, yeah, that's something we should probably know too off the top of our heads. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, sh I should know that. But uh, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> that's okay. So then, was it? right out of completing your PhD that you then got the job at Palm Beach Atlantic University, or was there some, some teaching uh, in between? Yeah, um, there was, there was a little bit of a gap in there. In, uh, nine, I finished up my coursework in 1997. Um, my wife and I moved up to DC for her to finish work. Um, mm. in, uh, she's in psychology um, to uh, Washington. And then, um, you know, I decided to, uh, you know, do some adjunct teaching while I was working on my dissertation and that sort of thing. And, and naturally, you know, I, I put together groups. So while I was there, I uh, helped found the Washington Cornet and Sackbut Ensemble hmm. um, based on my experiences down at Florida State playing early brass. And that group has gone on to become something really, really special now. Um, in our early days, you know, we were just kind of getting started. But, um, you know, they've really, really, you know, come a very, very long way as a, as a professional group. So that's still um, a reg that's still a regularly rehearsing and performing ensemble in the D.C. area. Oh yes, yes, yes. Uh, they they perform like all over the country now and in, you know internationally as well. Hmm. So um, so after that we moved up to uh, Pennsylvania um, so my wife could finish her doctorate, and then you know it was during that time that I finished my uh, dissertation, and uh, somewhere in there what 1998 yes I was on Fulbright to Spain to do uh, research for my dissertation. Oh, wow. What, what was your dissertation work on? Uh, my dissertation work was on a Spanish composer by the name of uh, Juan Esquivel, uh, not the famous space age bachelor pad music guy, uh, Mexican <laughs> fellow, but uh, this guy was a Renaissance um, sacred music composer. Okay. And just kind of like a biographical sketch on his life kind of thing? Or? Yeah, uh, normally, you know, we don't really jump into biography when we do these you know, these dissertations, but his biography was so scant at the time. Um, I did an awful lot of legwork on trying to fill that out, but mostly my work was on um, his, uh, a lot a lot of his polyphony that he was composing, especially for uh, Marian feats. Hmm. Interesting. Was it um, while you were up in the Pennsylvania area that you, in addition to the, the Washington group, started playing in civil war groups up in this area too, or is that not a hobby that you found until later on? Sure. It was uh, during that time that I was uh, working on my dissertation and my wife was in school that um, I decided to, you know, extend my, you know, performance practice, you know, historical playing to, uh, um, to 19th century music hmm. um, because we moved away from DC. So I stopped playing in the, uh, in the uh, Baroque Renaissance ensemble. Mm -hmm. And so while I was up there, I decided, you know, put together a civil war brass band. And then I started looking at what it would take to acquire the instruments. And, oh, yeah. and so I was quickly disabused of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't know the right people process. just yet. <laughs> yeah, definitely a barrier for entry for sure, unfortunately. Oh, for sure, my goodness. <laughs> Even the uniforms are not cheap. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're finding that out for sure with the group that we play in. <laughs> yeah. So, so what I did was um, uh, I started adjunct uh, – well, actually, I started um, – um, teaching sort of part-time, full-time at the University of Delaware doing sabbatical replacements. Mm -hmm. And um, 
while I was doing that, I met some of the local brass players. I, I played in a couple of brass bands while I was there, the uh, Spires Brass Band in uh, Frederick, Maryland, mm-hmm. and then the Chesapeake Brass Band over in uh, Newark, Delaware. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, meeting enough people, I decided to put together a later 19th century brass band. And this was right when eBay was first getting started. Mm-hmm. And so um, I sold off a couple of uh, instruments that I wasn't playing. I had like a silver sonic trombone, which I missed dearly. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it, it sort of, you know, gave me some feeder money to start buying uh, instruments, say, from about the 1880s, 1890s. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I put together a little collection of, I mean, really, really bad instruments. Um, but they were, you know, of the period mm-hmm. and got some guys to, you know, try to play them. And so, you know, from humble beginnings, we eventually created the Newberry's Victorian Cornet Band, mm-hmm. which uh, we specialize in music after the Civil War, but before Sousa. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. A little sweet spot right in there from... Oh, my goodness, yeah. Eight, nobody 1860, was doing that. Yeah, 1865 to about 1880, I guess, right? That well, was... uh, I'd say about 18... Uh, yeah, about 1860-something to... Uh, I think we cut off about 1890. The Sousa, the Sousa band started about 1892, you know, his uh, civilian band. Oh, okay, yeah. I think he, he joined the, the Marine Band as conductor in 1880. I think, but then. Oh yeah, yeah. He was he was composing quite a bit in the. Mm-hmm. In fact, the late eighteen seventies, even uh, some of okay. his uh, first compositions are published. Oh. And then, um, you know, by eighteen ninety two, he's he's really doing a completely different thing than any band in America at that point, mm-hmm. for except sure. for maybe the Gilmore Band. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so we can, unless Stephen, unless you have something, we can circle back to Newberry in a second. Mm-hmm. Maybe we maybe we can kind of finish out your. Uh, your higher education story here first and then double okay. back to some of these ensembles. So you were doing some uh, full-time adjunct work at Delaware. You said, was that in musicology or applied uh, low brass or euphonium? No, uh, unfortunately I've never had a full-time applied position. Um, hmm. um, all my uh, university work has been in uh, music, teaching music history. And then of course the undergrad or the, um, the non-major courses like music appreciation or uh, American music, things like that. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. So yeah, at Delaware, I was teaching the uh, music history survey, running the early music ensemble. And then um, I taught at a couple of other places part-time too, like the College of New Jersey, Susquehanna University. Mm. Um, and I finished up my adjunct life at the University of Maryland down in College Park. Okay, great. So then after University of Maryland, is that when you got the... Um, job at uh, Palm Beach Atlantic? Yes, yes, I did. I succeeded uh, two of my classmates down there, actually, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) which uh, it's always wonderful to do because, you know, you come in and they they kind of already know where you're coming from. Yeah. Could you maybe talk about a little bit what you teach down there? Uh, Is it kind of the same stuff you had been doing uh, before or did you kind of craft any new courses um, down there? Oh, sure. Um, I, I teach the, the standard uh, music history sequence. We have a, um, a three-semester uh, sequence with a, a medieval renaissance, uh, baroque classical, and then um, a romantic uh, modern. Mm-hmm. And then um, I did create a couple of classes down there. I created a world music ensemble because one, um, one of the fun things I did while I was at Florida State University was playing their salsa band down there. Yeah, fun. <laughs> and, um, and so I thought, well, this is pretty cool. I mean, we've got some very talented students here. So we every now and then we'll do the salsa band at, at Palm Beach Atlantic. Uh, every now and then we'll do an Irish ensemble. Uh, I've done um, Brazilian music. You just, you know, whatever students seem to be interested in, I kind of put together something for them to do. Yeah, that's but I also cool. do the yeah. early music ensemble down there as well. Mm-hmm. 
the um, the courses I've created, I started a Beatles class. That's also one of my passions, and um, and some special topics courses on things like music and art or um, other rock music topics, that sort of thing. Oh, Very cool. Yeah. yeah, Beatles is one of my passions as well. I think when we were talking before this interview through email, I was saying that we should have a separate discussion <laughs> on just Beatles stuff. But that's that's a different podcast. Yeah, Chris has a <laughs> wall. yeah, yeah, some good stuff. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say, oh yeah, so I'm I'm teaching a world music class at George Mason University right now, and that scope, you know, it's a very blanket term kind of thing. And oh, you were yeah. so when you cycle through the the types of ensembles that you guys play is that purely student driven i know you're saying that it's kind of based on the student uh desires at the time or do you have the final say in what the uh, actual ensemble is going to be each semester oh yeah yeah it's, it's my decision and uh, it's we're a small school it's a it's a private uh, christian liberal arts university mm -hmm. and um so you know, the number of students is a little bit smaller than a place like, you know, even George Mason, I imagine. Mm -hmm. um, but the, um, so I look at the sort of what the students like and what they're able to do. And I sort of decide what we're going to do from there. Yeah. And is that the same principle with the, the early music ensemble that you have as well? Yeah, that's a little bit more, um, you know, I, it, I can do, I just, I, I pick the, um, say the era that we're going to do that semester or a, a theme or something like that. And there's so much music I can kind of, you know, plug in, you know, oh, based yeah. on, you know, sort of you know, what's available to me as far as talent. Mm -hmm, for sure. I know based on you, oh, sorry, go ahead, Steven. No, I was just going to ask if you have ever taught any courses on um, 19th century, like brass band music, or is that something that you are more active in with, with the bands that you've played with and, and helped form? Well, yeah, like I said, since we have a, um, a smaller student population down there and it's mostly uh, singers, um, gotcha. yeah, the, uh, a brass band class probably wouldn't fill. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah. um, I haven't had the opportunity to do that yet. I'm, I'm hoping to in the future, of course. Um, okay. I have yeah. had my uh, Coates uh, Civil War band come down and play. Right. And so, you know, we have exposed the students to that music and even had a couple of students uh, play with us. So that was that was fun. OK, great. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And then, so you got down there, what year, when did you start at that university? Uh, 2007. 2007. Cool. So nice. Oh man, quick math. 13 years down there. Yeah, yeah, I know. It, it goes by fast. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Wow. You know, I think the only thing I might have left out was, and something I'm quite proud of, is I, I was uh, two years with the Drum and Bugle Corps, uh, the Skyriders, back mm. in the early 1980s. Okay. Um, I was in the core the very first time that the core had ever made finals in 1982. Hmm. And so, you know, I keep up with all those guys on Facebook and stuff. And it's, uh, it's, um, that, that's something that, you know, I'm really proud of from you know, mm -hmm. back in my early days, I guess. But I think it's about the only thing I really left out. And that's marching baritone, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I was the section leader for the, uh, the baritone line that year. Gotcha. I'm not Great. super familiar with with uh, drum cores and stuff. We're going to devote a, an episode in the future to kind of mm -hmm. showing that the evolution from military field music to uh, veterans associations and going into like DCI and stuff. But sure, yeah. was, was that particular drum and bugle core a part of the same circuit of what we hear of now as being like the cadets and the blue devils and, and those types of groups? Oh yes. Yes. Um, DCI uh, started in 1972 um, this was, uh, 1982. So it was, you know, really going full force by then. Mm -hmm. Um, back then we were still playing all G bugles, two valves. Mm 
Mm. Um, we had our ways of working around some of the chromaticisms. Yeah. Uh, for example, we had these really big uh, King uh, contrabass bugles, which had uh, extra long slides built onto them, uh, tuning slides, which you could grease up. And so we could get like a second and third illegal oh, yeah. combination. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we played a lot of jazz, you know? There you yeah. go, there you go. Did, uh, did it not have trombones back then too? It, w- it was all pure of valves then right oh yeah 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 um i don't really keep up with dci all that much anymore i'm not a big fan of you know introducing all the you know the extra instruments and yeah. the, the amplification and all that sort of yeah, thing I'm, say, I'm kind of a dinosaur you know from yeah, my they, era yeah i was gonna say they started with adding well i guess the amplification kind of started first and then trombones and now woodwinds and then like right. re- really heavy synth amplification yeah it's it's, it's a beast now it's a very different thing now, yes. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> You're talking about the, the Newberry Victorian cornet band. Uh, so is that an ensemble that, that you formed from scratch by yourself? Or uh, can you talk a little bit about the formation of that ensemble up in Pennsylvania? Sure. That was the, the first early, um, well, the first 19th century brass ensemble that I'd started Mm-hmm. Around 2001, 2002, when I was uh, teaching at Delaware, and um, so I decided, hey, listen, I want to do uh, you know a period 19th century brass band. I can't do Civil War because I, I don't have the instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, so right about then, the Library of Congress started just you know um, putting out all of this music on their website, their American Memory website, mm-hmm. uh, not only of the Civil War era but also afterwards. And I'm looking through all this stuff and say, you know, I've never heard of any of this. Hmm. This is, you know, any of these composers, any of these pieces, um, any of the, a lot of these publishers I didn't even know. And then I started looking around and said, wow, no one is doing this. And that's usually an area that I like to get into (laughs) is places where no one is doing this work. So that, you know, you kind of have room to, to play around to sandbox and figure out, you know, the lay of the land, you know, and not really be in competition with anybody at that point. Yeah, for sure. I know that there's a criticism in uh, public school and collegiate general history teaching that people criticize that history is taught from war to war type of thing. And mm-hmm. you say, all right, here's the Revolutionary War, a little stuff, 1812, Civil War, and you kind of tell history that way. And, uh, you know, to a certain extent, I guess is is similar uh, in this time period, you know, the, the Civil War is kind of the sexy time period that, that draws mm-hmm, right. a lot of attention. So that, that's awesome mm-hmm. that you formed this ensemble specifically to, to fill a little gap in uh, what existed period. You know, that's, that's awesome. Right. I'm, I'm a little sympathetic to the, you know, the old style of history teaching. Cause I, you know, and, and I, I teach uh, survey classes, you know, sort of like a little bit in the old school style for music history too. I believe that students need a foundation They mm-hmm. you know, they, they need a, um, you know, sort of a framework to hang anything new on. Yeah, yeah, so for sure. I, I, I am sympathetic to that. But but you're right. Um, these gaps need to be filled, especially in music. If you read the band histories, you know, the few that are out there, um, they sort of go, okay, there were, you know, fifes and drums in the early um, part of the, uh, of the colonies, and then there were um, these mixed bands, and then we have brass bands coming in, in the um, you know in the middle of the 19th century, and then they skipped to Sousa, <laughs> as if yeah, nothing yeah. happened in between. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> We're talking decades of music making here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think from from some of the the research that we've seen from different universities and their different 
music history programs. You're even lucky if you talk about the brass band movement. You know, a lot of time you go from Beethoven and then Debussy, and then you're right into atonal piano music. So we're we're lucky if you if you get brass or Sousa or jazz, you know, mentioned in, in some of these programs. Unfortunately. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so in my my 20th century class, I devote a whole day to uh, to a band music. I, I wish I could do more, um, but the um, but I, you know, I start with, you know, sort of, you know, the, the basics and uh, show them some videos of my band playing in the you know, late 19th century style. And then we, we look at a piece by Persichetti sort of as the, the main thing that we look at. So mm-hmm. we, we do get to talk about band music, at least for a day. Yeah. Well, yeah, like great. I said, better, better than a lot of other programs. So that's sure. awesome <laughs> that you're able to devote that time. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what's the significance of the name Newberry's Victorian Cornet Band? It, was that uh, an ensemble that historically existed? No, um, but it's based on the idea of the ensembles that existed in the um, after the Civil War and, and really and before the Civil War too. Bands were named after their leaders, mm-hmm. and so usually have a cornet player who had some music education, the ability to arrange, and they would actually get together a group of people and teach them how to play their instruments. Mm-hmm. And then after some time, they would get you know, you know to be very very good, and then of course their name of the band would become a bit more famous. Mm-hmm. So our first leader of our band was Flora Newberry, who's a wonderful mm-hmm. trumpet player, um, you know, went to uh, uh, Juilliard. And um, she, um, you know, she, she left us uh, to move, uh, where'd she move to? Uh, I can't forget. But anyway, she left us after a while. So we asked her if we could keep the name because it sounded very Victorian. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so, 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 to, uh, so, so just to clarify, so you, you formed the group? Or, or she formed the group? How, how... No, I, I formed the group, but um, she was sort of our stage leader. Gotcha, because I needed gotcha. a cornet okay. player out front. Right. You know, I, did, okay. I don't know of any bands in the 19th century that had a, a baritone player out front. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. That makes sense. <laughs> and then uh, were, you mentioned eBay. So was basically every single one of those instruments acquired through eBay? Or were some of the, the members using personal instruments also? Was there kind of a mix like that? Well, I, I started off getting instruments on eBay, and then I started learning about some uh, private collectors who had some instruments. So I, I found a couple that way as well. Um, the cornet players, for the most part, got their own instruments on eBay, um, and uh, so we were able to, you know, to get started. You know, basically, you just need to make sure you get a, a tuba and a couple of the low brass instruments. You know, the cornet players can usually find their own, mm-hmm. and uh, it, was, it was fairly easy to get started in those days. A little harder to find the instruments now. Uh, but back then, you know, people were just selling them left and right, and the prices were just ridiculously cheap. Um, and uh, just, you know, over time, we, you know, replaced the, you know, the the instruments that weren't so good with much, yeah, yeah. much better ones. And now everybody has really their own. I don't really need to provide gotcha. any anymore, except for the uh, the Helicon that you can see in the background here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> very nice. Yeah. So, so you still travel up to Pennsylvania regularly to be involved with this group that's still active? No, we uh, we were active performing while I was living up there. But once I moved to Florida, of course, that became very impractical. Mm-hmm. And um, so we perform now when we're invited places. Uh, yeah. About every three years, we play at the Vintage Brass Band Festival up in Northfield, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And uh, we play at other, you know, invited uh, situations. We uh, we also performed at Winston Morris's 50th anniversary celebration. Uh, he gathered some grant money together and 
and brought us up. And uh, we even uh, kind of got out of our Victorian mold a little bit and played uh, Al Hayes's solo Pomposo hmm. with two of our tuba players kind of tag teaming on that yeah. <laughs> so that Winston could come up and actually conduct us. So That's that was awesome. that was a lot of fun. Yeah. That's really cool. Where were any of those other people alumni of Tennessee Tech by coincidence or were you the only tech alumni? Well, um, originally uh, we were supposed to have two of us were tech alumni. One of the members um, was not able to come and perform at that, uh, that event. Um, so um, I was really the only tech alumni in the band at that point. Yeah. Hmm. Got you. Now there's a, there's a kind of neat, well, to me, I'm from Pennsylvania, so there's a neat kind of connection here. Um, and this might be jumping ahead a bit, but um, Thomas Coates was from Pennsylvania and you, did you found the Coates brass band that is in Florida, correct? Right. Uh, now, with Thomas Coates, that kind of became a research interest of mine. Um, and a lot of my research interests come out of things that I play. Mm -hmm. um, even in the Renaissance world, you know, I would be playing some music and I say, well, I don't know much about this composer or this style of music, so let me go do some digging and writing. And with uh, American brass band music, there's so little written on anything that, um, you know, there's, again, it's a pretty fertile field for research. Mm -hmm. Right. But when I first moved down to Florida, I had been playing with um, the Federal City Brass Band, Yari Villanueva's group. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, after a couple of months, I started really missing that because it was a really great group of guys yeah. and gals, I should say. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, fantastic mm -hmm. players. It, just, it was really, really a great situation, and I missed it. So I invited some of my friends, you know, from that group to come down and I said, hey, let's, you know, come down here in February when it's gorgeous down here <laughs> and uh, let's do some, let's do some Civil War playing. I'll find a place for us to play. Yeah. So I did a little digging around and I found out that there is uh, some Civil War history down in Key West, Florida. Mm -hmm. um, fort uh, Zachary Taylor was one of the, the forts that, you know, brought in these, um, these uh, Confederate raiders, you know, from the. Um, from the Anaconda plan, if you will. Hmm. And, uh, and so the, they often had Union troops stationed down there. Key West, you know, never really was a Confederate city. You know, it was immediately taken over by Union troops as soon as the war broke out. And so um, I found out that one of the regiments down there had a brass band, hmm. uh, the 47th Pennsylvania. Out right. of, uh, um, the 47th Pennsylvania comes out of mostly out of Allentown, right. but also some, a, a few other uh, towns around there. And um, they brought with them a brass band from Easton, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And uh, they actually overlooked the brass band that was actually in their own town, in Allentown, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, because the Easton band, under the uh, direction of Thomas Coates, actually was, you know, much, much more famous group. Mm -hmm. And so they decided to go with the 47th Pennsylvania to war. You know, first they went to um, the defenses in Washington. But in an incredible stroke of fortune, in, you know, very early in the war, they were assigned to the brigade that was down in Key West, Florida. Mm. And so um, Lou Schmidt did this really, really good um, study of the 47th Pennsylvania. So I learned quite a bit about what was going on, you know, from his rather giant volumes. And, um, and so I thought, wow, this is great. I actually know of an actual band that was in Key West. So I called up the park service down there and we arranged to come down for, they have a, an annual Civil War Days. So we arranged to come down and play for that. And that was mm -hmm. the, back in 2009, I think was the first time that we did that. And we've been playing on and off ever since. Yeah. It's kind of like d discovering another Port Royal band, almost, you know, like kind of a, a rediscovery of that type of uh, union band 
having like a strong foothold, you know, in in a southern occupied territory. <laughs> right. The uh, and the the cool thing about it is once I learned that this band had a band leader who was also a composer, I said, "Wow, this is great. I can actually do some some actual musicological research on this." And the more I dug on Thomas Coates, the more I realized, wow, this is an amazing American musician that no one knows anything about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, At least yeah. not anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I noticed that there's an album recorded with the Coates Band and with Newberry's Victorian Cornet Band. So did you start doing uh, the research on Coates once you moved down to Florida and then organized both of these recording projects uh, after the fact? Which I know you were saying that the, the Newberry group uh, you know, it's still active, but less regularly. So was that recording project kind of put together uh, just to record the, the Coates music? Sort of. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> I mean, we, uh, in the Coates Brass Band, we, we did some, you know, some performing here and there when we could. Um, but I, I got the idea to do a recording of Thomas Coates's music after I did some research on, on him as a composer and started looking around for where I could find his music. Mm-hmm. Most of it seems to be in the Manchester Cornet Band books. Mm-hmm. And as I started learning, as I did research up in uh, Easton at the Historical Society, that uh, Thomas Coates was actually quite a well-known composer before the Civil War. Sort of his heyday is like the early 1850s. Mm-hmm. He was working in New York City, so he was there with Dodworth and all these other guys, um, Grafulla and all these other people. He kept kind of a low profile. He wasn't really, you know, one of these egotistical, you know, outgoing guys. Yeah, yeah. He was just, you know, quietly competent. And of course, everyone noticed. Um, so, you know, a lot of his music was in these band books before any of these bands went off to war. Because hmm. uh, the Manchester Cornet Band books date from about 1852 to about 1858. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I found a lot of his music there. I found actually one piece in the 26 North Carolina books. Um, and then, um, you see, uh, I think there's, uh, of course some of his music appears in, uh, um, in manuscript too, up in, uh, Allentown and that sort of thing. So I gathered together what I could find. There was just enough to do the civil war album. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mm-hmm. interspersed a, a few things from other sources, you know, sort of, uh, because our conductor at the time, uh, Doug Hedwig wanted, you know, some things that people would know already. Mm-hmm. So we you know, put red, white, and blue and things like that in there. Mm-hmm. And that was the the Coates recording, uh, the uh, the Coates Brass Band recording, right? That was the Coates Brass Band recording. So we recorded all of his music that sort of was from the Civil War era, mostly like I'd say the eighteen fifties. Mm-hmm. We put that, you know, with the Coates Brass Band. We recorded it on the over the shoulder instruments and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then um, after that, I decided, okay, well, you know, he kept composing after the war, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of music here still, you know, to get out there. So I got my Newberry's group, which is later 19th century, mm-hmm. and we put together just recently a recording of uh, his music, you know, from after the Civil War up to his death in 1895. Mm-hmm. It's really cool to see in the like the Coleman catalogs, his pieces right alongside the newest pieces by Sousa at the time. Oh wow! And then, kind of jumping in my notes a little bit later, but I'm curious now why. Or how, I guess, is the the better question. Back in that time period, was a composer's music disseminated in a way that it would appear in all these different uh, band collections, you know, in the 26th North Carolina and Manchester? You know, was it, it was published in uh, 
a journal that was readily available or was it subscription based? Do you know like how it was able to spread so so well? Well, there are there are a few sorts of things that get spread that way. For example, um, Oscar Kuhn put out a, a set of pieces um, in which he published, and that sort of got around the country. There was also the Brass Band Journal. Um, so you know, we know G. W. E. Friedrich, you know, only because you know he was he was the guy in the spot to do the arrangements for the yeah. uh, for the Brass Band Journal. Exactly. And of course, there there are other publications which came out of Boston and New York. Um, Coates was not part of any of that. Um, it's one of the things I'd still like to find out is how people found out about his music. Mm -hmm. My initial hunch is that, you know, that this music was played by a band. There was, uh, you know, a group of, you know, other band members around decided they wanted that music too, and they would just copy it into their own books. Mm -hmm. We know that this happened all the time. We read reports from bandsmen of the civil war saying, uh, we needed some new music. So we went over to the, you know, the, uh, you know, the fifth regiment and they had a really good band and we copied some of their music out and started practicing that. Yeah, um, the 26th North Carolina actually talks about doing that with the 11th Mississippi all the time. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. We, we mentioned earlier in a, in another episode, how that was the original Napster, the original, oh, <laughs> the music sharing. <laughs> yeah. Definitely sharing music. I, um, poor Tom Coates, you know, his music got around, but he never got a dime for any of the, uh, yeah, the sales. We'll put yeah. it that way. Yeah. Right, well, yeah. The name is starting to catch on, thanks to you. So I guess there's the the little silver lining with that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I was going to ask um, maybe about the Coats Band. Is that an all brass band, or did you start to include some woodwinds at any point? Because uh, I know that sometimes their woodwinds were included. Um, right. In the uh, in the Coats Brass Band, um, the Civil War unit, uh, we decided to go all brass. Um, at that point, we had not really found any good working woodwinds from that period. Mm -hmm. um, our lead cornet player, Jeff Stockham, had a couple um, that eventually ended up in the movie Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. But the, um, um, we decided not to go that way because uh, none of the music we found actually had parts for those instruments. Okay. Now, we know that they, you know, they just doubled the B-flat or the B-flat cornet parts. Right. But um, we decided to keep it all brass because it was the sound that we liked. And, and you look at enough pictures of the bands, you don't see any woodwind players in the pictures. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just don't. Yeah. And so we figured, okay, well, we have good legs to stand on here as far as keeping it an all brass band. And, of course, all of the uh, publications like in Dwight's Journal and things like that before you know, the war, they talk about these all brass bands. Now, we know some bands did have woodwinds. Uh, Port Royal, I know, had, they have a couple mm -hmm. of uh, clarinet books actually yeah. in there collection and um and so these bands that were a little bit more um stationary could do that mm -hmm. but i think the the field bands definitely you know you, you weren't able to do this woodwind repairs you know out on the road and that sort of yeah, thing yeah, true. <laughs> yeah even that um the fred Fennell's you know civil war music and the sounds mm -hmm. album i mean they did include woodwinds but we talked about how they they didn't even use the the historical instruments <laughs> you know they decided that it wasn't worth it when they were recording that so. <laughs> oh right <laughs> yeah. it has only been recently that we in the newberry band have been able to find good enough instruments um to actually record with um mm -hmm. the first recording that we did with the coats uh music um we had some excellent these uh young eastman uh, clarinet players were playing with us and um they did a fantastic job and also i should include uh larry buchanner who's one of our clarinet players too he was a former bass clarinet with the national symphony and um you know they they struggled with those instruments i mean they did as good as anybody possibly could 
Um, but by the second recording we've done, which has not been uh, released yet, um, we got these clarinets to some of my uh, Baroque clarinet player, well, Baroque classical clarinet player friends um, who do work on these instruments. And, uh, and now they sound really, really good. I think you're going to be really pleased when you hear the new recording come out. Great. Do you have a target release date for that new recording? Uh, as soon as we raise the money date. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so anyone listening would like to help. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah we'll... I was going to say we can, we can plug it at the end and see if we can float sure. some, some yeah, uh, yeah. listener funds. Yeah, we have about uh, $2,500 more to raise. So what, what about Thomas Coates's, uh music made it stand out? Why, why is he such a notable... Uh, person to be studying. Well, I'm glad you asked that. I, I seem to, in my research, really sort of latch on to the oddball composers. Mm -hmm. the, the Renaissance composer that I studied also had sort of a quirky style about him. But Thomas Coates was a very, very uh, creative composer. The very little that's written about him uh, prior to the research that I've started, the things that they mentioned that he was one of the most artistic composers of the brass band era. Um, he, you know, didn't publish, uh, piano scores like a lot of these other New York and Boston composers did. So that's one of the reasons we don't know his music quite as well. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it and, and listen to it, you'll hear that he had a very creative approach to harmony. Um, some yeah. of his harmonies even sound sort of like proto jazz harmonies at times. Hmm. Um, and, uh, his scoring is really interesting as well. Um, it's, it's not as I don't know, it's not as sophisticated as his harmonic writing, because sometimes you'll be looking through the, uh, all the parts and you'll see like one second E flat alto has like an incredibly important chord tone and no one else has it. Hmm. So balance <laughs> issues sort of become yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a problem there. You can't really but, strip um, it down to a, a sextet or a quintet or anything with, with that type of writing. <laughs> exactly. Um, there were some folks back in Coates' day that said he did all of his writing on guitar. Um, oh. He was not only, you know, first he started off as a French horn player. You know, he was billed as the boy wonder of the French horn. Apparently, you know, he was able to learn it in just a few months when he was like eight years old or something. Hmm. Um, you know, when um, he got down south and started doing his tour, you know, down there, uh, I won't call it a tour, but he started kind of bumming around the south when he was young. Um, he picked up the cornet because that was the instrument, you know, that you can make money on. Mm -hmm. And um, by the time he got back to Pennsylvania... Um, he was a cornet player. Oddly, he didn't write any cornet solos that I know of. Hmm. Um, it was just, you know, just his leader's instrument, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, so his music has this really kind of, uh, you know, very cool, um, you know, chord progressions that no other composer of his time has. In fact, um, I, when I do presentations on Thomas Coates, I'll talk about his Cottage by the Sea quick step. Mm -hmm. in which the opening bars of this, you know, do this incredible modulation. Uh, it sounds so sophisticated. And one person actually noticed that it was exactly the same modulation that is the opening of Tchaikovsky's uh, first piano concerto, hmm. um, which was written later after Thomas Coates. <laughs> so, you know, he wasn't copying anybody. Yeah, right? yeah,
his Wait. music definitely sounded different from what other bands were playing at the time. Oh, certainly, yeah. I mean, he could write pretty much in the standard style like everybody else, but um, you knew a Coates piece when it was being played. Yeah. Um, it was obviously much, much more difficult than, say, um, a Graffilla piece or a, um, a Downing piece or, or one of these other composers, but um, you knew you were playing a Thomas Coates piece. And so many of his compositions are originals. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he does set some popular tunes of the time, but a lot of his quick steps are you know, completely original melodies. And um, there's only one uh, opera transcription that I can see. So, you know, he was a composer more mm-hmm. than an arranger. Yeah. Wow. So I, I've seen on, on the albums that you've put out that he's dubbed the father of the American band music. <laughs> By his friends, he was. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, so in, um, uh, right after he died, of course, he died in 1895, was buried in the uh, 7th Street Cemetery up in Easton. Um, just a normal grave marker at the time. But a few years later, some of his friends decided to raise money for a rather grand monument. And at that time, there was a friend of his uh, by the name of Fisk who remembered Thomas Coates and gave us some of the most valuable information that we have about him. If this guy had not done an interview for the local paper, we would know nothing about mm-hmm. Thomas Coates. Very mm-hmm. private person. Um, wouldn't even tell anyone his age. Wow. Um, so we really don't know when he was born. We, um, you know, we think it was 1803 and he died when he was in his 90s, um, but it might not be. Um, you know, the, the last picture we have of him from 1895, he does look really, really old. Hmm. Then again, you have to sort of filter through, you know, I mean, Victorian people look older than we do anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's just so hard to tell. I mean, he could be in his 90s. I mean, he yeah, certainly yeah. looks it, but he could also be in his 80s. So we don't know for yeah. sure. Yeah, interesting. Because I know if you were to, you know, ask a musician who the father of the American band music was, you know, I think... 99.9 percent of people would say probably john philip Sousa on it like probably right so it's interesting that there's this name that uh isn't receiving the the recognition on a on a broad scale that it should but obviously that's hopefully starting to change with a lot of your your research and material that right you're putting i don't in. think i would actually call him the father of american band music like i say in my itg article he's more like the sort of odd uncle of American <laughs> band music um, because he was a real character in Easton during his last days. I mean, people would, you know, um, would say that he was, you know, sort of the, you know, the sort of the town eccentric, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was, uh, he was there at the beginning of American band music. He wrote some of the best pieces of the time. And we have, you know, you know, people corroborating this talking about his music Um but his friends called him the father of American band music and put that on his uh, gravestone. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice tribute. And, and, and like I say in my papers, uh, you know, he has as good a claim, I think, as anyone in mm-hmm. those days. Yeah. Is, is there any type of lineage of influence that you can kind of trace besides maybe Tchaikovsky <laughs> taking it for his <laughs> piano music? But, like, is there, is there any long-term lasting effect of his compositions or his musical style or instrumentation that that can directly be credited to him? None that I could actually uh, point to with any good evidence. So, I, no, I would say that yeah. all of the composers of that time are the influences on people like Sousa. Yeah, They're the influences on, to some degree on people like Gilmore, um, who, you know, who basically you know, wrote in the, a similar style, 
um, and built upon what they did and, and built upon mostly the infrastructure that they built of uh, American band, you know, popularity. Um, you know, Sousa and Gilmore and some of these others decide to go more towards a European model mm-hmm. and bring in the woodwinds and make those sort of an equal partner in the sound. So, you know, these guys were, you know, part of the story of American bands, but, you know, it's hard to trace any direct lineage, say, mm-hmm. from one to the next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that's in contrast, I guess, to John Philip Sousa, where we're able to make some darker lines between connections. And he's kind of like the, the pillar, a little bit easier to make that claim as like a, a Beethoven or a Bach kind of within the band world, I would think, right, would be Sousa. Well, right. I mean, uh, you have to remember that so many of the other band composers from that era actually came from Sousa's band. Right. And in mm-hmm. uh, similar ones. And it, as we learn more about early American band music, we'll start to see that there are you know, certain stylistic characteristics of, say, the Italians versus you know, the Germans of the early bands. I mean, mm-hmm. all, almost all of the American bands from the early days were like all German musicians, mm-hmm. um, whereas later we get you know, many, many more Italians. And then, um, you know, I mean, all sorts of things come in. So it's going to be, I think, a richer history once this gets built out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Right. For sure. Fill in the family tree of brass in America a little bit more. Sure. <laughs> um, kind of jumping back to your Coates Brass Band a mm-hmm. little bit. Um, are those, you said it, there's a utilization of over-the-shoulder brasses in that ensemble? Or, I guess first, is that still a regularly performing ensemble? It depends on how you define regularly. <laughs> okay. We, we still do perform. Um, I mean, all of us are getting uh, a little bit older. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I get concerned about is, is going out in the Civil War uniforms and looking far too old, you know, for, mm-hmm. you know, to be, you know, be a good representative of, of bands of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd still definitely like to record music. Yeah. yeah hey. All these guys are still fantastic players. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, you know, the, the performing in the uniforms thing, I think, is uh, um, it's dwindling from, you know, what we did before. I, I, I perform more live with the uh, Newberry Band when we get an opportunity to do that. Gotcha, gotcha. gotcha. Um, and then, so with those instruments that you're using with the Coates Brass Band when you guys do play and record and stuff, are those, again, eBay acquisitions? <laughs> well, um I've been very, very fortunate to, um, well, when I first started with the Federal City Band, I got mm-hmm. to meet some people um, who have these instruments. For example, Mark Elrod, who's always very, very kind to mm-hmm. allow me to borrow a mouthpiece and, and sometimes even an instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff Stockham, like, who is our, our principal E-flat player, um, and I think the finest of all E-flat players going today. Um, he has a very nice collection that we draw on as well. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, a lot of my guys have their own instruments as, as well. You know, people like Steve Lundahl uh, on tenor or um, I'm trying to think of uh, my uh, uh, Max McMillan, our bass player. You know, people like that who you know have their own instruments now. Mm-hmm. And then would that Coates Brass Band, uh, would you characterize it that as more of a, a reenactment ensemble than uh, the Victorian Band? is well um yes because uh, they have civil war reenactments um so in our earlier days a few years back we would actually go out and and put these brass bands you know in the the civil war reenactments 
because I found out with the federal city band, one of the really cool things about that was that they would actually go to these reenactments, camp out with all the guys and um, fill in one of those missing pieces of the yeah. reenactment. Right. Um, yeah. Because in, I remember when we were doing Gettysburg, because the federal city band does actually two impressions. They do the federal city band, which is um, you know, union, but mm -hmm. they would also do the 26 North Carolina band, which mm -hmm. is Confederate. Yep. So as the 26 band, we were doing the big Gettysburg reenactment once and we're there in the woods camped with all of these other reenactors, you know, people who, who take this stuff seriously. Yeah, definitely. Uh, they, they, they want to really give a good impression. And so these guys would come by while we're, you know, rehearsing in the evening and, you know, guys who've been doing reenactments for like over 20 years, you know, just, you know, with almost tears in their eyes saying, mm -hmm. you know what, I've been doing this for so long and, I knew that it wasn't totally complete, but I, but now I realize what was missing from, you know, the environment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we kind of prided ourselves, you know, in, in our band as well, because the, uh, the 47th Pennsylvania was at um, the battle of Cedar Creek in, in the Shenandoahs. Mm -hmm. And so we would go out and do that reenactment and, uh, you know, honor those guys, you know, who lived that, you know, rather uh, difficult life, you know, of being in the army in the 19th century yeah, and, um, and, and providing, you know, really, really good brass music for these reenactments. And you would do that 47th impression with the Coates brass band down in Florida. Yeah, we would do that. Uh, now the, the civil war days down here is a little bit more of a, uh, like a civil war festival more than a reenactment. Hmm. So we would do, um, we would do performances for the uh, school kids that would come by. We would play in the parade that they would have, and then they would do a wreath laying at the Civil War Memorial down in Key West. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's a little bit different situation, um, mm -hmm. but we really like doing some of the others like Gettysburg and Cedar Creek and, um, and some of the other ones that we played at. Yeah, I guess that, that would have been a better way to, to frame the question. That, that was all fantastic, but the, I guess what, what my question was intended to be was the Newberry group is uh, an ensemble uh, in the style of, I guess, and then the Coates band is giving an impression, is is in, intending to be that band? Well, with the Newberry band, we also, you know, because a lot of the guys from the Coates band play in that as well. Mm -hmm. And so we also take our impression very seriously with the Newberry band. Um, our uniforms are not quite as up to snuff as our Civil War uniforms are. Mm -hmm. We're working on that. Um, but we look and sound very much, I think, like a late 19th century band. It's all period instruments. Mm -hmm. um, we try to do the period technique as much as we know of it. Mm -hmm. um, and we only play music from that era. So, you know, we'll play you know, the Thomas Coates music. Um, but there's so much other published music from that time, too. Mm -hmm. And so on our, our new recording, we do a lot of the uh, other things that I found through the Library of Congress and other big collections of late Victorian music. Mm -hmm. We'll we'll include um, links and pictures and stuff in our, our show notes so people that are listening can refer to that and find pictures of these groups and recordings of these groups that, that we're talking about. But with the, the current uniforms that Newberry is using, what what are those based on? Uh, based on thousands of photographs yeah. <laughs> from that era. Every band had a picture made. And so we gear ours based on sort of an early 1880s style, hmm. um, you know, with the, uh, we have the blue wool coats with the uh, gold uh, frogging on them. And 
Um, our hat is a little bit later design. Uh, we're hopefully going to upgrade that at some point. Um, but yeah, we, I, I think we have the look of the bands of those times. Awesome. And then similarly with the, the Coates Brass Band down in Florida, are those uniforms that you use there uh, trying to match pictures that you see of Coates' actual band? Well, one of the problems is we don't have any pictures of Coates' actual band, mm. um, <laughs> which is unfortunate. I've looked and looked and looked. Yeah, yeah. We have a picture of Thomas Coates. In fact, we have two pictures of Thomas Coates in his military uniform. But he was, a um, like most band leaders of the time, a second lieutenant. Mm -hmm. So um, we have pictures of some of the 47th guys. Um, but the, uh, the field music, for example, of the 47th dressed in Zouave uniform, mm. which was kind of cool. And we know that because, um, sadly, uh, one of the drummer boys, a little 11-year-old kid, was the first uh, person to die in the regiment of uh, yes. smallpox in, in mm. Washington. Oh. And so they have his uniform in uh, Sunbury, I think it is, mm. uh, you know, in For... the case there, so you can see. We, uh, we did find a picture of William Williamson, who was in the field music um, for the 47th. And uh, his uniform is sort of the standard, uh, you know, enlisted frock coat with the kepi and the, um, you know, sort of the, the normal um, sort of Eastern, you know, Union uniform. So that's what we go with. We go with mm -hmm. just the, uh, the frock coat and the, the kepi. And we think we're pretty darn close to yeah, because I know there's a lot of research that says that a lot of times the bands either matched the soldiers or like very slightly embellished uh, off of like officer pay or that type of thing. But right, the the band uniforms were often very similar. Right in the uh, in the early war, the band uniforms were actually I mean they just wore their uniforms that they had, yeah. and so you had these uh, actually bands in gray uniforms sometimes going off you know, with the union troops and I'm sure the officers probably had them change those pretty quickly, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, yeah. but, uh, or other bright colors. Mm -hmm. But by the time you get to, um, say late 18, 1862 or early 1863, the bands basically are just taking uniform shipments from, you know, along with the soldiers. So they're wearing just your basic blue sack coats with everybody else. Gotcha. The only way you can tell the band is that, you know, they have, instruments in their hands basically yeah. and then for listeners that uh might not that might still be learning about the civil war and you know be a little bit more just familiar with the music side can you briefly describe what the zouave uniform looked like and and why that was so different from what was just described well the zouave uniform was based on uh french units and uh the french units were actually based on uh, very loosely based on some of the african units that served with them very bright, colorful, baggy pants, um, you know, the short sort of uh, Turkish style vest, um, you know, very, very colorful. And of course, these were made very famous by, um, you know, the, uh, the band that came out with the 7th Regiment. And, you know, they did, uh, you know, they played very, you know, wonderfully, you know, under Grafula. Mm -hmm. But the, um, the colonel of the 7th Regiment also had their, um, their enlisted men doing these incredible military drills. And so this was like a show for people in those days. And um, of course he was famously killed, you know, very, very early in the war at the first battle of uh, uh, Bull Run. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, Colonel Ellsworth, I believe it was. And, um, and so, you know, this was, you know, very fashionable at the time. And there was WAV units really all the way to the end of the war. There were some that just, you know, just would not give up that uniform, even if it wasn't the, you know, the full, 
you know uniform that we saw early in the war. They would mm-hmm. still maybe have the top half going. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then with both uh, Newberry and your coach band, we already talked about instruments, but then mouthpieces specifically, are you strict with uh, period mouthpieces or modern reproductions of period mouthpieces or modern mouthpieces is fine? Where do you sit in that spectrum? Yes, that's always one of the big questions. I mean, whether you play um, any historic brass instrument, whether it be Baroque or, or 19th century, do you play a modern mouthpiece, which enables you to play, you know, certainly a lot smoother, a lot better, you know, a lot more comfortably, or do you pick up the period mouthpiece and try to, you know, you know, come to terms with it in some ways. Um, For us, we pride ourselves on playing the original mouthpieces um, because we believe that it truly changes the sound of the instrument. um, If you put a modern mouthpiece in one of these 19th century horns, Mm -hmm. it just does not sound the same anymore. Um, especially with a really good player. Um, now, you know, we've just, you know, through a lot of time and playing these things, it's just, you know, we've come to, you know, the old mouthpieces are just, they're fine. You know, we just get used to them. And, uh, we know that we have to play them a little bit differently than you do, you know, like a big Schilke or a Bach or something. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, we really think that the instrument prefers it to be honest. Mm. Yeah. It kind of sits in the, the sweet spot of the horn. A little bit more. Yeah, um, it's really kind of hard to put your finger on it. I mean, sure, it, it fits in the instrument a whole lot better because that's what it's designed for. Uh, the modern mouthpieces don't quite fit into these instruments as well as the originals do. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they tend to be shallower, and so I mean, I do look for the deepest one I can find because yeah, yeah. You know, I play you know the, the baritone parts. Yeah. yeah. But um, you know, you have to just kind of learn how to get the sound that the instrument wants. I mean, that's. You know, in the in the early music world, uh, whether it be Renaissance Baroque or anything, one of the things that we learn is that the instrument will tell you how to play it. Hmm. Nice. We can we can see you since we're talking to you through yeah. Zoom, and <laughs> exactly. you've you've got some horns uh, above both of your shoulders. Oh um, yeah, that's the ones I have for display. Yeah. Yeah. So can you maybe go into what your your personal instrument collection looks like, and if there's any horn that you're particularly proud to have, or maybe the first one that you that you got that kind of spurred your own collection? Oh, well, the very first one that I got, oh, goodness, what was that? Oh, the first one I got was an 1880s um, unmarked tuba, E-flat tuba. Okay. Probably made uh, at the Boland and Fuchs factory in uh, Central Europe. And um, it's a wonderful playing instrument, uh, not very well in tune. I mean, it probably, even brand new, it wasn't terribly well in tune. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I mean, these were, these were budget instruments made for the town bands who could order a whole set, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, at once. And so, you know, you get a tuba, but it's, it's not going to be the top of the line professional model. Mm-hmm. And then I just started buying a lot of uh, the low brass valve instruments because those are the ones we needed to, to get the band started. Yeah. And so I've got an early uh, Busher uh, four valve instrument, actually, you know, I mean, like from the 1890s, a four valve, it's kind of cool. Um, I've got, I got a little instru- a little uh, baritone, which is uh, sort of along the same lines as the tuba I got, which I just love playing. Again, uh, the intonation on it is, is so hard to deal with. You're, you're playing fast passages, having to play, you know, bass clef C above the staff, one and three, mm. and the D <laughs> right next to that, one and two, and you're yeah. trying to play fast passages because here's why. Even when you're playing fast passages, the, the pitch is so flat, it's noticeable. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, again, it's something you just get used to doing. 
What, right. What's the year and make a, of that baritone? Do you know? That one's also from the 1880s. I want to say some of these are really hard to date because yeah, they yeah. use the same um, pattern for decades. And so, you know, this one could have been made in 1900 for all I know, but it's yeah. the same instrument they would have made in 1887, True. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I've got a couple of trombones. I've got a shelf full of cornets, which are in various stages of repair. <laughs> um, my goodness, I've got, I've got one uh, J.W. Pepper baritone, which seems to be sort of like a transitional model. It's sort of, you know, sort of long and skinny, like the old Civil War upright instruments. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, it's uh, three Paranay valves. Mm -hmm. And so I want to say that that one's probably from the 1870s. Mm -hmm. um, probably the oldest one that I have because, you know, I can't really afford the really super old ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the the Helicon I've got back there is mm -hmm. uh, one that we use quite a bit. It's probably from about 1905. It's a J.W. Pepper uh, E-flat Helicon. And um, I was able to get that from, you know, um, a woman who was selling her husband who just passed away his instruments and she just wanted to get rid of them in a hurry so i got a good mm -hmm. a good deal there, there you go. yeah was that baritone that you were mentioning before is that your go-to instrument for the ensembles when you play in them well when recording i don't use that one again because it is so squirrely and mm -hmm. intonation uh in performing i like to use it because i can manage but in recording i like to use a jw pepper um it's actually a fairly large instrument for its time. It looks like a modern euphonium, really. Hmm. Um, but it's probably from about 1900. Um, and um, because I generally play the B-flat bass part in our group, mm -hmm. um, I have Barry Buchanan, a wonderful, wonderful baritone player, and yeah. he's uh, playing you know, our, our more technical parts these days. <laughs> and so he has a, a beautiful Boston instrument uh, um, baritone that I sold him some years ago and he sent off to have refurbished and now it plays just wonderfully. Yeah, Barry's a great guy. I sit right next to him in the brass band in Northern Virginia, kind of a newer group that oh, yeah, uh, yeah. formed. Yeah, super friendly. And I think he's a listener, so hi Barry if you're Yeah, hey Barry. <laughs> <laughs> you guys should have him on. He's 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 a good guy. Oh yeah, <laughs> we've been talking list. about yeah. it. Yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a, uh, a an instrument on the top of your holiday list? Like kind of a uh, something that you're aiming for or have had your eye on for a while that you would like to have in your collection? Oh, I would certainly love to have an early con. Uh, I mean, I do have an early con, um, but it's, it's in pretty terrible shape. I'd love to have an early con that plays well. Like, you know, from his, he started putting out instruments in the late 1880s mm -hmm. um, of his own make. And um, I'd like to have one of those that plays well, but mostly I'd love to have a civil war instrument. There's one that Mark Elrod sometimes lends to me that um, I wish I could find one just like it. It's an E.G. Wright upright uh, silver with mm -hmm. uh, the side action rotary valves. Mm -hmm. And that one just plays absolutely beautifully. Um, that's one that I play on the um, the Coates Band recording. Barry mm -hmm. and I tend to kind of switch back and forth, you know, the B-flat bass and the baritone part on the recording. So that we, mm -hmm. we both get a chance to play the fun stuff. There yeah. you go. <laughs> <laughs> any, any double bills in your collection? Actually, I am um, not a double bell fan. Uh, no. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, for for me, I mean, especially since the double bell doesn't come out in the United States until kind of after the era that I I do, mm -hmm. um, and I just I don't know. It's it's the double bells have been overpriced because a lot of enthusiasts who don't play buy them. You know, like dentists who have lots of money, you know, and so they can, you know, they keep the price up, you know, and so I just yeah. really never. They want the Dr. Seuss horn for a display. I, so. 
I always say it's a good tuba Christmas instrument. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's fun to look at. In, yeah, yeah. in undergrad, sure. I played in kind of like a, a German polka style mm-hmm. band. And on um, a trumpet player's recital, I, I played a, a con double bell. I forget the oh, year. Yeah. But it was... It was it was cool to play, but it wasn't the most enjoyable experience. <laughs> no, I mean it's it's heavy, it's not balanced. Uh, you wonder what on earth do I do with this other bell other than double the trombones or you know, when you play solos, you know. I yeah, think yeah. I used it twice for a little interjection yeah. in, in the tune, but I, I didn't use it that much. <laughs> I'm sure nobody noticed, and you giggled to yourself when you did it. So. Uh, <laughs> like, well, it was funny. I mean, I walked out on the on the stage. It, it was in Hatch Recital Hall at Eastman. Uh, it, anyone is familiar with that hall it's kind of a, a smaller stage and you see the audience's head just perk a little bit and i got some questions afterwards <laughs> yeah text I'm like where'd you get that horn and it was actually a french horn player um from pennsylvania knew someone who had it and, and she was able to bring it up to eastman uh so that i could play on it a little bit and we checked it out but uh yeah it definitely definitely an interesting experience to play on those double bells mm-hmm. right well speaking of the double bell and and maybe you can put this in there somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. Anyone who has uh, the book, the euphonium source book that came mm-hmm. out from Indiana University Press, um, I did the uh, history of the euphonium section in there, uh, the first chapter. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting learning about the early um, double bell uh, instruments um, that actually were in Europe. Um, I believe it was Italian maker Pallidi was the first one to make one. And then um, Adolf Sachs came along and copied it. And then, of course, in the Adolf Sachs manner, claim credit for inventing it. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, was he? Uh, he got a lot of lawsuits right after he made his uh, his family of sax horns, right, and basically went out of business. <laughs> right. Um, Sachs had the dual problem of being brilliant and being a bit of a jerk. Uh, <laughs> he uh, and and well, the third problem, he was Belgian. Um, and no, no, I mean, nothing, nothing against the Belgians. No, I was no, no. Say, yikes. No, no. He was Belgian at a time in France when Belgians were not held up as, um, you know, being, you know, people you wanted around, I guess, in Paris. Gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's the thing. When, when Sax comes into Paris and starts making these instruments, all the other instrument makers get incredibly jealous. And so, um, so those three things that I just mentioned, you know, you know, he was a foreigner. He was, you know, not really a, a guy who was um, that you like to be around, I guess, all that much because he would claim credit for other people's work. He would uh, steal things and, um, you know, he was brilliant at it, but, you know, he didn't make any friends in Paris. Hmm. And so, um, you know, people just started suing him just, just to do that, just to kind of drive him out of business. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of it was because, you know, he would try to patent things other people would invent. Yeah. And um, and even though Adolf Sachs invented all of these instruments, um, he was also one of the main reasons they didn't take hold in the orchestra. Because the players in the orchestras of the time, um, all of the brass players also had an instrument maker that they were sort of associated with. They were sort of like brand reps in a way. Hmm. And so you know, they would say, no, we're not playing any of these sax instruments because, you know, I represent this other maker and, you know, yeah, yeah. It just kept it from sort of taking hold in the French orchestra, which was the one that would have, you know, helped sax, you know, get these instruments, you know, as sort of a normal part of the orchestra. Thanks so much for talking to us. Um, is Where can people find out more about your research, uh, perhaps anything you've written, and, and certainly the recordings you've mentioned? 
Well, um, people can check out my my bio at the uh, at Palm Beach Uni- Palm Beach Atlantic University's uh, website, of course. Um, they can also go to the uh, Facebook page for the Newberry's Victorian Coronet Band, also the Facebook page for the Coates Brass Band. We don't really have websites because I just I don't know if people even use websites. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, pl- and plus, you have to maintain them. But um, yeah, I just took mine offline. Like I think it expired last week. I was like, yeah, I don't even update it or use that. So yeah, no point. <laughs> <laughs> um, all of our uh, current recordings are available on YouTube. That one um, uh, Orchard Enterprises has put you know our, our our stuff up on YouTube for people to listen to. But we encourage people, of course, to to buy the CDs. We still have plenty, <laughs> and. Uh, um, you know, they can contact me directly at, um, I imagine you'll, you'll put that on your podcast website. Yeah. We'll have a, all this yeah. information in the show notes page. Yeah. So. Sure. Um, as far as early brass, uh, research goes, uh, I'm working on a huge, huge project right now, which, uh, I hope we can talk about on a, on a future, uh, segment maybe, Definitely. um, on the uh, music for the early brass band from about 1838 to about 1872, the, the E flat cornet era. I've collected music and scraps of music from all over the country. And my goal there was to try to bring a lot of this music that a lot of amateur collectors had had, had in their collections to uh, a more you know scholarly audience through you know publication, that sort of thing. Great. So, but, sounds like a that's sorry, I was gonna uh, yeah. say it sounds like a good tease for the, the next episode. We'll definitely you have go. you on in the future <laughs> to pick your brain about that for sure. But I have a uh, article about Thomas Coates in the International Trumpet Guild Journal, which um, I think it was the the issue before this previous one, uh, maybe March or February, somewhere in there. I have to look. Very great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. O'Connor, for coming out today. Uh, looking forward to having you on a future episode to talk about the other research. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much. Oh, it was my pleasure, guys. Uh, great talking to both of you. Uh, keep up the good work and uh, look forward to hearing more of you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So that concludes the interview with Dr. Michael O'Connor. As we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, what an incredible wealth of information and you know a lot of bases covered, but was really, really enjoyable talking with Dr. O'Connor and learning all that stuff about Thomas Coates and, and the ensembles that he runs. Yeah, definitely more knowledge than can fit in one episode. So we'll look forward to when we can get him again. Uh, and talk about some some of his other research. Definitely. If you like what you're hearing and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that would be go, to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. We're also up on YouTube uh, where we put these episodes up there. So if you want to subscribe to our YouTube channel and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, that would be very helpful. Uh, you can visit us online at eabbpodcast.com. And if you want to get in touch with us, we love hearing from you. So you can shoot us an email at eabb.podcast at gmail.com. This episode's featured album is one of the albums mentioned by Dr. O'Connor in the episode. It's titled Quick Step Brass Band Music of the American Civil War. This is the first album that was put out uh, by one of Dr. O'Connor's ensembles. This is the Civil War era brass band featuring the music of Thomas Coates. Uh, It has a ton of really great music by Thomas Coates directly, and then other patriotic and popular songs from the time period to give you a nice overall feeling of brass music from between 1861 and 1865. 
So please jump over to our show notes on our website at www.eabbpodcast.com where we'll talk about this album as well as providing links of where you can purchase it. Thank you so much for listening to episode number five of the Early American Brass Band Podcast, and we'll see you next time.